0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind public radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest, to aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, To see others as more similar to us than different. To strive for patience and personal grace, even in adversity. To be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Coming up on a Humankind special, a majority of Americans disapprove of the U.S. Supreme Court, according to several recent polls. When a draft decision was leaked indicating the court would rescind federal protection of abortion rights, confidence in the high court plunged to an all-time low. Nearly two-thirds of the country supports keeping abortion legal. Now that the Roe v. Wade precedent has been overturned, the Supreme Court is at the center of the controversy. President Joe Biden.
1: The court has done
2: what it has never done before, expressly take away a constitutional right that is so fundamental to so many Americans that it had already been
0: recognized. Should we revise the way the Supreme Court justices are appointed? Should the court itself be reformed? Are there constitutional ways of doing so? I'm David Freudberg. Stay with us for Humankind. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and Documentary Educational Resources. This special project is supported by the Democracy Fund and by the Humankind Program Fund. Fixing how federal judges are nominated and retooling the way our court system functions. You're listening to a Humankind Special, part of our series Judicial Independence. I'm David Freudberg.
3: There certainly is a problem with the way Senate confirmation hearings have really become theater for senators to give speeches and for nominees to say nothing. Um, And and that takes away a powerful tool for the American public to see who is being appointed to uh, the judiciary. And that is something that the Senate needs to take a good look at itself.
0: We can add that to the list of problems with America's federal courts legal observers across the political spectrum see much that can be improved, the most controversial proposal may be to expand the number of judges on the Supreme Court, but other ways to restructure the judiciary are also under consideration.
4: Good morning, everybody. Judge Barrett's family, welcome. The hearing to confirm Judge Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court will now begin.
0: Supreme Court nominations have become a political football. Nobody much likes the tone of the process, which has become increasingly partisan and personal, even toxic. But it has allowed Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, to score some strategic wins in his long quest to remake our courts into a bastion of
1: conservatism. This is something to really be proud of and to feel good about We've made an important contribution to the future of this country. A lot of what we've done over the last four years will be undone sooner or later by the next election. They won't be able to do much about this for a long time to come.
0: McConnell fast-tracked the confirmation of judges under Republican President Donald Trump. Almost a fourth of all active federal judges in the United States were appointed by Trump. Senator McConnell relishes that lasting influence.
2: The person who sits on the bench um, on the Supreme Court really matters.
0: Emily Bazelon writes for The New York Times Magazine and is senior research fellow at Yale Law School.
2: And I think people on both sides have um, woken up to the degree to which the party affiliation of that person tends to predict the way they're going to rule. That was less true until the 1980s, but then you start to see Republicans in particular through the Federalist Society, um, which has been very successful at moving the bench to the right, you start to see them be much more intentional about picking very conservative judicial candidates for the Supreme Court. And you see some response to that among Democrats. Um, You see more reliable liberal picks um, from them. But the conservatives and the Republicans have had more of the choices to make, more of the nominations than Democrats.
0: As Emily points out, the Republican Party has not won the majority of votes in six of the last seven presidential elections. And yet vacancies on the court from deaths and retirements have allowed Republican presidents to appoint six of the last 10 justices. The question is whether this skews the court in a way that's out of step with public opinion. But Professor Jonathan Adler of the Case Western University Law School thinks ideology is the wrong way to analyze judges.
1: We expect that justices are trying to answer the questions before them to the best of their ability, faithful to uh, the Constitution, faithful to uh, other sources of legal authority. Uh, and the more they are evaluated not on their ability to do those things but on whether or not they will rule in a particular case in a particular way that's favored by a particular interest group or a particular party, then it's harder to view them as being different or distinct uh, from those who we elect uh, to you know, to elect for Congress or elect for the presidency.
0: Which has the effect of politicizing the court a reality that has now boiled over with the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there's little question the intense polarization of American life has spilled over to nominations for Supreme Court justices in recent years. It reached a flashpoint during the bitter clash in 2018 over the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh by President Donald Trump. But the battle over America's judiciary had been raging for years. Rulings by the courts touch so much of the way Americans live. Health care, immigration, elections, abortion, climate change, civil rights, gun ownership, and so much else. In our constitutional republic, the decisions by judges have consequences, which is why so much is on the line in how the judiciary operates. Kimberly Atkins in Washington, an attorney and journalist now at the Boston Globe, as reported on the Supreme Court for nearly a decade.
3: There has always been, uh, between the three branches of government, this sort of tug of war over which branch has more or less power. They're supposed to be a check on each other, of course. But you see over time uh, that the power of one sort of begins to shift uh, and, and rise as the power of another uh, lowers. And I think what we've seen in recent years is the rise in the power of the judiciary, particularly in the Supreme Court, uh, in the impact that it has on the laws and, and the ways laws are carried out or not carried out and how that impacts Americans. So I think that is what has drawn that attention. And we have seen all the ways in which the judiciary, which is supposed to be a neutral arbiter of disputes uh, and is supposed to be, so to speak, above politics, just how much politics impacts the courts, impacts the justices even individually. We're seeing more examples of that, and I think that's raising uh, the consciousness about it.
0: The Supreme Court was created by the Constitution, not by Congress. Justice Samuel Alito, a consistent vote among the court's conservative bloc. He was reacting to statements in a 2019 court filing by five progressive senators who were commenting on a case before the court that could have loosened gun control. The senators, who were appalled after a period of mass shootings, warned that a court moving sharply to the right might need to be reorganized by Congress. Under the Constitution, we exercise the judicial power of the United States. Congress has no right to interfere with that work any more than we have the right to legislate. Our obligation is to decide cases based on the law, period. And it is therefore wrong for anybody, including members of Congress, to try to influence our decisions by anything other than legal argumentation.
2: I mean, I think it's wishful thinking.
0: Emily Bazelon of the New York Times.
2: Look, the Constitution does not say that there should be nine justices on the Supreme Court. It says nothing about the number of justices. In the 1860s, the court switched from six to nine to ten to back to nine. And Congress can change the number again simply by enacting a law if it chooses, provided that the law is signed by the president. Now, I mean, it would be a big step. I don't I don't <laughs> I'm not trying to minimize it. But I think for Justice Alito to say that Congress has no power here. I mean, that's just not true.
1: I think expanding the court for the purposes of producing a a change in the in the governing philosophy of the court uh, is what we've always recognized as court packing.
0: Jonathan Adler of Case Western Reserve Law School.
1: And when Franklin Roosevelt proposed it, it was overwhelmingly rejected, including by members of his own party. Um, The report that the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, uh, which was headed by folks of his own party, uh, produced on his proposal, uh, completely excoriated him um, for proposing that.
0: President Roosevelt's plan in 1937 grew out of frustration that his New Deal policies passed by Congress in the Great Depression were being nullified as unconstitutional by a group of older conservative Supreme Court justices. At risk were the Social Security Act and a law that allowed collective bargaining by unions. So the president's proposal was to appoint a new justice for each one on the court over the age of 70, Opponents derided the plan as court packing. If by that phrase the charge is made that I would appoint and the Senate would confirm justices worthy to sit beside present members of the court who understand modern conditions, that I will appoint justices who will not undertake to override the judgment of the Congress on legislative policy, that I will appoint justices who will act as justices and not as legislators. If the appointment of such justices can be called packing the court, then I say that I, and with me the vast majority of the American people, favor doing just that thing now.
2: We had at that point in history a desperate economic situation in the Great Depression.
0: Emily Bazelon.
2: We had a Democratic president in Congress who were very committed to trying to address that problem. And the Supreme Court got in their way. If we have a similar situation in the United States again, Congress and the president are going to act. They're not going to let nine unelected people who have no army um you know, stop them from something really important they think they want to do. The question is whether the court really has any interest in bringing the country to the brink of that kind of constitutional crisis. And I think if the justices don't want to invite that kind of loss of power or trimming of their own sails, then they're going to need to be careful about how far to the right they actually go.
0: And there are hints that some in the court's conservative majority may have goals beyond overturning Roe v. Aid, which could then provoke a forceful response. We
5: have um, a very clear precedent for this.
0: Aaron Tang is professor of law at the University of California, Davis, where he specializes in constitutional law, federal courts, and education law. He has clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court.
5: In 1937, when FDR announced his proposal to add six justices to the Supreme Court, um, it worked in a sense One month after his announcement, the Supreme Court um, uh, upheld three uh, key laws, uh, one state law, two federal laws that uh, of the kind that had previously struck down a clear change in behavior from the conservative rulings that preceded it. Um, uh, It worked. The court packing threat created what, you know, historians have called a switch in time that saved nine. Owen Roberts switched his vote, but also Chief Justice Hughes did in some cases as well. Um, and so FDR's mistake was not calling victory, was was not stopping while he was ahead. Right after that ruling, he could have said, we don't need to pack the Supreme Court. The justices have clearly signaled that they will allow the people to have minimum wage laws, labor law, the, the regulations, economic uh, regulations we want. We don't need to pack the Supreme Court. His mistake was to continue Pushing that proposal when there was no need.
0: We're exploring the possibility of reorganizing America's federal courts. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, part of our project Judicial Independence, To obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. As a Democratic senator from Delaware, Joe Biden served as chairman of the powerful Judiciary Committee for eight years. That's the venue which decides whether judges nominated by the president are considered for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench. As a committee member in 1983, Biden weighed in on the topic of adding seats to the Supreme Court.
1: President Roosevelt clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate and the United States Congress a proposal to pack the court. It was totally within his right to do that. He violated no law. He was legalistically absolutely correct. But it was a bonehead idea. It was a terrible, terrible mistake to make. And it put in question for an entire decade... The independence of the most significant body, including the Congress, in my view, the most significant body
4: in this country, the Supreme Court of the United States of America.
0: But the idea of expanding the court has recently attracted new support. That's especially so among those who feel the Republican-controlled Senate unfairly refused even to take up Judge Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nomination by Democratic President Barack Obama. So some liberal activists propose adding judges to the court. Here's Aaron Tang at the University of California Davis Law School.
5: The progressive in me, the person who wants what's best for what I what I believe is best for society, I could certainly be wrong, but it's what I believe. Would like nothing more than to stack the courts with more liberal justices to ensure all of the outcomes that I care about: healthcare, uh, immigration law, gun control, reproductive autonomy. Um, but uh, but the but the realist in me recognizes that any move down that path, any act by Congress, whether to pack the Supreme Court or even something more subtle like term limits, will be perceived by the other side as escalation. They will retaliate with more. uh, And before we know it, our Supreme Court will be unrecognizable and not credible at all. And so our best case outcome, I think, is for the Supreme Court to correct or moderate itself.
0: But the decision to revoke federal rights to abortion may intensify the pressure.
1: I oppose expanding the court for the purpose of altering its ideological or philosophical balance.
0: Jonathan Adler at Case Western Law School in Cleveland is a member of the Conservative Federalist Society.
1: I think doing that basically says that it is appropriate for uh, the political branches to systematically alter the court in ways that are designed to guarantee outcomes the political branches want. And if that is something that is appropriate to do, the question has to be asked, why have a court at all? Um, Because one of the roles the court is supposed to play is to be a check on the political branches, is to refuse to enforce actions taken by the executive or legislature Uh, that um, uh, it disagrees with, and um, there is no question that the proposals to uh, alter the size of the court now are not about the court's ability to do its job, are not about some sort of structural or institutional a purpose; They are about altering the substantive outcomes that the court will produce in line with what some folks had hoped was going to be a governing majority in, in um, the executive and legislative branches.
0: Congress would be within its rights to expand the Supreme Court. In our divided politics, Republicans would likely denounce that as a power grab. Similar, perhaps, to the reaction by Democrats when Judge Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court was denied a hearing or when Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination was rushed through on the eve of the 2020 presidential election. Senator McConnell had been remarkably effective in loading up the courts with Republican-appointed judges. Kimberly Atkins.
3: Well, I think that is not by accident. I think the fact that um, we are seeing the Republican Party begin to shrink in its numbers, shrink in its influence, and also shrink in terms of its support from uh, the American people is why there was such an urgency on Mitch McConnell's part to install as many judges uh, in all levels of the federal
0: judiciary as he could. But Democrats have in general been less focused on the judiciary. Polling shows Republican voters who prioritize issues like abortion and gun ownership are much likelier to see the courts as a bulwark for their concerns. As Kim Atkins points out, Democrats never made the judiciary a centerpiece of the 2016 presidential campaign, the same year that Garland's nomination was shut down without a vote.
3: Democrats have not really ever done that. Republicans have been very good at messaging that the courts are needed to protect the ideals that they see. And so we see the result of that, which is a very conservative court, which will probably, no matter what reforms may or may not be implemented, the judiciary is going to be very conservative for a very long time.
1: One step that we should take, and something I advocated at the time Merrick Garland was nominated, and at the time that um, uh, George W. Bush's circuit court nominees were being blockaded and filibustered, uh, is that all? Not judicial nominees should get a prompt, uh, prompt consideration by the Senate, and should get a prompt vote.
0: Jonathan Adler.
1: Ideally, we would have a presumptive schedule. Um, ideally, we would have an understanding that when a nomination is made, it is considered for a particular amount of time. Um, that hearings occur within a particular time, votes occur within a particular time, and that an agreed upon presumptive schedule would determine whether or not nominations get considered and filled prior to an election. That's something now for close to two decades, I have been calling for members of the Senate on a bipartisan basis to agree to those sorts of rules in advance precisely so we would not have what we had occur in 2016 and, and what occurred in 2020. But in the absence of that sort of agreement, um, it it should not surprise us that it, it is instead a exercise of political power.
0: Many of the legal experts and journalists we've talked with seem to favor methods of recalibrating our judiciary without shocking the system. They think a lot could actually be accomplished that way toward removing the court from politics. And they're sensitive to the sharply polarized environment that currently characterizes the United States. Attaining progress, they believe, may mean avoiding extremes. Emily Bazelon of The New York Times.
2: Chief Justice John Roberts is in a different position from any other member of the court because the court has his name on it. It's the Roberts Court. And he doesn't want it to be remembered as either a tragedy or a farce, right? Um, When you think back to the courts, maybe, well, there have been a few different naders, but one of them is um, what we call the Lochner era, when the court really moved so far toward um, the interests of corporations over workers that it became a national embarrassment. Um, That was a very reactionary kind of court. The Lochner era is discredited universally, um, pretty much, in the legal world. And I I don't think Chief Justice John Roberts wants the Roberts court to be remembered that way. And that does have some bearing on him.
0: Although deeply conservative, the chief justice tried without success to steer the court's majority away from an outright reversal of Roe v. Wade. And on other occasions, he has sought to exert a moderating influence, in November 2020, one week after the presidential election, the Supreme Court held a high-profile hearing about a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. At stake was health insurance for more than 20 million Americans. At one point, Chief Justice Roberts said that lawmakers could have repealed the act themselves. I think. Uh, frankly, that they wanted the court to do that, uh, but that's not our job. The chief justice seemed to be signaling that he wished to stay in his constitutional lane, perhaps a gesture of moderation at a moment of rancorous partisanship. Another consideration in judicial reform is tightening the rules for judges. Ensuring that Supreme Court justices are impartial is essential to their credibility, especially at a time when so many Americans are poles apart from each other. Kimberly Atkins.
3: The Supreme Court, for example, is meant to be a neutral arbiter of cases that come before it. They're not supposed to be advocates. They're certainly not supposed to be putting a thumb on the scale in one way or another. But if you look, uh, just recently, Justice Samuel Alito was a featured speaker at the Federalist Society's annual meeting. He still uh, is serving as someone who is clearly very close to this organization. So that alone, you would think that there would be a rule against a justice who is sitting on the court to be this close to an an obvious player, big player uh, in this scenario. But because there aren't really rules that prevent that, that is allowed to go on.
0: Justices write books, accept invitations to give lectures at law schools and elsewhere, and occasionally grant media interviews. The question is, does associating with organizations that hold strong views on issues that are before the court create a perception that judges are biased?
3: The justices of the Supreme Court are bound by the Judicial Code of Ethics, and they're also bound by uh, due process principles, Um, but... The enforcement mechanism rests with each justice himself or herself. So essentially, they make the decision about whether or not they, say, recuse themselves from a case where they may be close to some of the litigants or have some other potential perceived or real conflict of interest.
0: A subject that's come up recently regarding Ginny Thomas, a conservative crusader who had extensive dealings with the Trump White House, and who's married to Justice Clarence Thomas. In January 2019, unrelated to Thomas, the House Judiciary Committee convened a hearing about judicial ethics. Among those testifying was Sarah Turberville of the Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan watchdog group concerned with abuse of power. She cited potential violations of judicial codes of conduct, known as canons.
4: Take, for example, the comments of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made to the New York Times in the midst of the 2016 presidential campaign where she said, I can't imagine what this place would be, I can't imagine what our country would be with Donald Trump as president. This seems an obvious violation of the fifth canon prohibiting political activity. Or look to Justice Brett Kavanaugh's conduct during his 2018 confirmation hearing where he described the allegations of sexual misconduct against him as a partisan conspiracy threatened that what goes around comes around, and demonstrated hostility towards senators inquiring about his fitness for office. This rather plainly violates canon two, requiring judges to avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety.
0: The first model code of judicial conduct was published by the American Bar Association nearly a century ago. Based on that, the Judicial Conference of the United States, the policymaking body for our federal courts, adopted its Code of Conduct for United States judges in 1973.
4: This code binds a wide range of judges in our federal system from circuit courts of appeal to judges on the U.S. tax court. In fact, virtually every individual serving as a judge in this country is held accountable to a basic Code of Conduct, the glaring exception to the nine justices on the Supreme Court.
0: Coming up, should there be term limits for Supreme Court justices? There's an interesting debate over what might be constitutional. And who gets to pick the cases that the high court actually takes on? Humankind continues in a moment.
1: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.